It's been, uh, uh, the last few weeks um, in the news have been interesting. We just finished, a little bit ago maybe finished, uh, a bit of a wild ride. We mentioned it last week, that whole Supreme Court thing, the Supreme Court justice thing with Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and, uh, and the sides and the accusing and, and the mudslinging. And I don't know, I have a feeling... As we approach midterm elections, in the words of that eminent theologian, Bachman Turner Overdrive, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Anyhow, if you, if you haven't been watching the news, I almost want to say, good for you. <laughs> the U.S. Senate heard testimony from this Dr. Ford about allegedly being sexually assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh, the president's nominee for the Supreme Court. It has been, from many different perspectives, a tragic situation. But what really amazed me about it is the intensity of the opinions that people had. I don't know if you've noticed that people actually have pretty strong opinions on this. And the interesting thing is the people who have these incredibly strong opinions also have little or no facts and they also have no connection to the case at all, okay? Some of them absolutely convinced that Kavanaugh is guilty. Others equally convinced that he is innocent. Well, rest assured, I am definitely not interested in solving that issue in this sermon. I'll leave that to others who are more qualified than I, a little higher pay grade. But what I am interested in is the answer to this question. When will we... No. Now, not just this issue. There's all kinds of issues comes up. There's all kinds of things. I remember years ago, some of you uh, will remember the, the O.J. Simpson trial, not the recent one, the first one, you know, with the infamous white Bronco chase and everything. We had a guy in our church. I, I have, we needed CR in that church to have a group for O.J. Simpson trial addicts. Because he knew every word that was said, he watched it continuously, and it's like, oh my goodness, a five-minute synopsis on the news was too much for me. And he was just, he wanted to know. He wanted to, is it, how does it turn out? It was like a reality TV show for him. But when will we know the answer to those things? When will all that has been done in darkness be brought into the light? When will all the wrongs be made right? Wouldn't you like to be able to see justice done? I know most people have that wired into them. We want to see justice. Here's an even more vital question. What about you? What about me? See, we want to ask, when will all our wrongs be made right? But the flip side of that is a little scarier. When will all of our darkness come to light. Oh, you didn't like that so much, did you? It got a lot quieter in here. <laughs> You're all good when I'm talking about other people being brought to justice, right? Just not you. That's, that's how we are. That brings us to our final theme of Esther. We've walked through Esther. We, we kind of highlighted everything in the first week. And then in the subsequent weeks, we've looked at some of the major themes from the book. And this is our final one. Um, it's very profound. It's very deep, okay? Okay, are you ready for this? What you do comes back to you. I grew up hearing that. What you do comes back to you. 
You can't drive around very many roads here just out of town where you, you don't understand and see that harvesting is going on. Right now, we can, we can hear it all night long. Harvesting is going on. By the way, public service announcement. Give them room, okay? Don't, don't get impatient as they're going from, from field to field. Just be nice, okay? Because if it wasn't for them, you'd be hungry today. So just be nice, okay? But I see harvesting going on, and near us, we have a number of fields. We have some really big corn fields. We have a couple of bean fields. Let me ask you this. Um, in that big corn field that was across the street from my house, I think they're finished um, with it now. Did, uh, what did they plant there? Corn. Yeah, it was a corn field. Did they plant that last week? No. It would have been nice, but they didn't do that. They planted that long ago. If nothing is planted, nothing is harvested. And what you plant, you harvest. We see the field across the street, and if I don't watch them plant it, it's like, what do they plant? Give me a little time, and I'll tell you, because I'll see it coming up. Oh, there's beans. Oh, there's corn. We know that. That's the principle of planting and harvesting, of sowing and reaping. That's what you do comes back to you. The Bible has a lot to say about the principle of sowing and reaping, about justice and judgment and reward. And today we're just going to touch on how Esther, the book of Esther, illustrates that pretty well. So we're going to just talk about a couple of the characters and what happens. I had an outline almost ready to print, and there was just too many verses on it. I didn't want you like this the whole time. You have whiplash. So they'll be up on the screen. You'll be able to see them all, and if you need them, I'll print them and put them online so that you can have all the verses. But we're going to talk about some of the characters and just read a smattering of the verses so that you can see that this principle of sowing and reaping, the laws of the harvest, the the planting and harvesting, um, is very well illustrated in this book. Remember Mordecai from our story. Mordecai was, uh, remember, all, all of the children of Israel, or most of them, had been taken away during this, um, the, the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and defeated them and hauled them all away as slaves. They got defeated eventually, and the new king in town of the whole area is Xerxes, but all of the nation of Israel, the ones that were there, most of them stayed there. They never went back. They're still there um, living in, in those conditions. And one of those Jews that was there was Mordecai. And we hear from the story that he's, he tries to do the right thing. He hears at one point, um, overhears this plot to kill the king. And the king is not necessarily a good guy, but he's the king. And Mordecai overhears this plot, and he tells Esther about it. Esther tells the king and gives Mordecai credit. And Mordecai, because he did the right thing, he planted well, he sowed something good, he was honored. Actually, because of that, the king saved all of the Jews in that area too. In Esther 6.11, it says this. So, <clears throat> before I say that next word right there, a couple weeks ago... Um, we just had a little bit of fun with this. That, I'm not going to say it yet. That guy right there is the bad guy of the story, and he is really bad. And see, some of you were here. When we say his name, now you don't have to do it every time I say it. <laughs> but when we say his name, you go boo, okay? So I'm going to try it. So Haman, boo. yeah, see, he's the bad guy. He took the robes and put them on Mordecai. And you read that, and it's like, well, that's nice. Mordecai got honored because he did something good. There's way more to that story, and I'll get into it in just a second. We're talking about Mordecai at the moment, though. It says in Esther 8, 16, The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. 
And that was because Mordecai made the right choice. Because Mordecai did what was right. He sowed good things. In Esther 10.3, Mordecai, the Jew, became the prime minister in this foreign land with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was great among the Jews. That happened because he did what was right. That's the law of the harvest. What you sow, you reap. What you plant, you harvest. It says, He was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. Because he did what was right, God honored him. Because he planted good, good happened. Then we have Haman. Haman, in his arrogance and bitterness attempted to um, kill Mordecai and annihilate all of the Jews in the entire area. Can you put 611 back up there? I just, this verse, in, if you need, if the football game's not going your way today, and you need to read something that's, that's both biblical and profound and a little bit funny, read Esther 6. In Esther 6, um, we have this guy, this bad guy, Haman, who wants so bad to take out Mordecai, to kill all of the Jews. And he's actually got his, his family has worked him up. His bitterness is deep. And, and he takes and he puts this like, I don't know, 70, 75 foot sharpened pole up in, in, the, in the big open area and he's going to impale Mordecai on it. And so he's going into the king to do that. Meanwhile... Back at the ranch. Meanwhile, this is one of those places where, you know, God's name is never mentioned once in the whole book of Esther. But he is on every page, in every chapter and verse. You can see his fingerprints everywhere. The king can't sleep that night. Chapter 6, you can read this later. Can't sleep that night. And so um, he, he calls somebody in. He says, I want you to grab one of these books off the wall and read it to me. It just so happens to be the, the books of the Chronicles of, oh, me. <laughs> and he wants them to read about himself and all the amazing things he's done as king. And I guess maybe that helps him go to sleep or something. So they, they, start, they have all of these Chronicles of the King. He's been there years. There's a whole bunch of things written down. And they, that was the night he just happened to not be able to sleep that he called somebody in who grabbed a book off the shelf. When they opened the book and they turned to the page and started reading, it just happened to be the story about how a few years ago, Mordecai overheard a plan to assassinate the king. And Mordecai told Esther, the queen, and Esther told Xerxes, the king, and she told him that it was Mordecai who uncovered this plot. And the king's reading this and says, I remember that. They were going to kill me. Did anything good, was anything good ever done for this guy, this Mordecai guy? And the attendants are like, no, nothing. And, he, and the, so the king's like, well, at that moment, they hear a sound in the outer court. Somebody's there. So he's been up all night reading these books and he hears, or having them read to him. And he hears somebody's in the outer court. Who is it? Guess who it is? It's Haman. Haman is coming to talk to the king about killing Mordecai and impaling him on the pole. Actually, no, impaling him on the pole live, and he would eventually die. So he walks in, and the king says, Oh, Haman, I'm glad you're here. And the king says, What should I do to honor a man who really pleases me? And you don't have to read it. Haman's like, Oh, <laughs> 
He's obviously, he doesn't say this out loud. He's obviously talking about me. And so he's going to come up with really good stuff because he knows he's going to be the one honored. And it's like, oh, you should put your robes on. I should let him ride your horse. You should have somebody go through the street shouting, here is the person who the king is pleased with. And he comes up with this whole thing that he shares with the king. And in verse 11 of chapter 6 where it says, so Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai. When Haman got done with this whole thing, the king said, I love it. The whole plan, every single part of it, go do that to Mordecai. I love it. I love it. So because of his bitterness, because what he sowed was bad, what he's reaping is bad, huge humiliation, huge embarrassment. But then in verse um, 10 of chapter 7, remember he was going to impale Mordecai on the pole. Verse 10 says, So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Again, series of events that it's like, it's real easy to say, wow, that was a coincidence. And it's like, no coincidence there. So because of his arrogance and bitterness and an attempt to annihilate the Jews and, and kill uh, Mordecai, he's the one who gets impaled. But then there's Esther. Esther um, uh, had put it all on the line. Esther had been in this foreign land as well. She was Jewish. Her parents had died, and her older cousin Mordecai in our story takes her in, adopts her and raises her. And through a series of kind of interesting, a little bit bizarre events, she becomes queen. But in the, in the course of that, she does what's right. She sows what's good. She plants what's good. And she puts it all on the line. She ends up reigning as queen and remaining in a position to help and empower Mordecai and for all of these good things to happen. Because she chose what was good. That's where the whole line comes for such a time as this. Maybe you've been put here for such a time as this. And that's true for every single one of us that we're in a situation we're in. And maybe you're there for such a time as this. And it's not to do the wrong thing. It's not to make... Remember, we want to make the hard right, not the easy wrong. Maybe that's why you're there. See, we hear this, we hear the, the ending, and we like a story with a good ending. We like justice. But I had a struggle with this message this week. Not with a story. I didn't have a struggle with a story. Mordecai and Esther reap what they sow, and it's good. I like that. Uh, Haman reaps what he sows, and it involves incredible embarrassment and then death. And I'm sorry, but I kind of like that too, because there was some justice there. And so you ask, so what's the struggle? It's certainly not the law of sowing and reaping, because that's universal. That has been in effect since Genesis. Everything produces after its own kind in the right season. That's always been there. Um, uh, Haman reaps what he sows. Esther reaps what he sows. All of that's true. All throughout Scripture, that's true. Sowing and reaping. What I plant, I harvest. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says this. You will always harvest... What are those last three words? What you plant. You will always... You can't plant beans and go and say, gee, I wish I had corn. It's not going to happen. You will always harvest what you plant. Proverbs 22, wait, no, Job first. I want to give you some negative examples of this from Scripture. Job 4.8 says this, People who plant trouble, harvest it. I won't do it, but there's a lot of names I could name from my past. 
that they had seemingly everything going for them, but they planted trouble. And when you look at their lives now, it's like, yep, that's what happens. People who plant trouble harvest it. Proverbs 22.8, in the message paraphrase, I love this. Whoever sows sin reaps weeds. That's what you get. Which is kind of sad because this whole farmer thing, I'm not a farmer. I don't pretend to be one. There's one thing that I can grow. Dandelions. (laughs) And they're weeds, so I don't know if this applies to me, but... Proverbs 22 in the New Living Translation says this, Those who plant seeds of injustice will harvest disaster. It's coming. It doesn't happen immediately. It's like you plant the corn. The corn doesn't come up immediately. There's a season for planting and there's a season for harvesting. In Hosea 10.13 it says, You planted wickedness and now you reap evil. I can't tell you how many people come to me and they have this horrible thing in their life and they're telling me about it and they tell me a little bit of their story and as I'm hearing their story and what they've done, it's like, you really shouldn't be asking the question, why is this happening to me? I know why it's happening to you. You planted the wrong stuff and you're harvesting it now and you don't like it. When you plant wickedness, you reap evil. Matthew 7, the scary warning. Whatever measure you use to judge others will be used to measure how you are judged. See, what we like to do is we like to judge others way more harshly than ourselves. I, I, I'm guilty just like everybody else. We will rag on somebody for what they do. And later, it kind of comes to mind that, oh, I guess I might do the same thing. <laughs> but I don't judge myself quite as hard. So we say, oh, that means what you sow, you're going to reap. It's a law of the harvest. But let me show you some of the positive examples from Scripture. We're just touching on this today. In Proverbs eleven eighteen, the one who sows righteousness will reap a sure reward. That sounds way better. I'd rather reap a sure reward than evil. In, in Hosea 10, 12, it says, plant good seeds of righteousness and you'll harvest a crop of my love. Way better outcome. But those are the seeds that you need to be planting. James 3.18 says this, Peacemakers, and remember, we've talked about this many times, peacemakers and peacekeepers are two different things. Sometimes being a peacemaker is a difficult thing. But he says peacemakers plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of of goodness. That's what I want. Now, are you getting the idea? This is just a small fraction of them. Are you getting the idea that this is not just some minor message of the Bible? The laws of harvest from beginning to end in the Bible, you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow with your kids. You will reap what you sow with your spouse. You will reap what you sow with your work. You will reap what you sow, and it will either work for you or it will work against you. You will reap what you sow. And that means exactly what you sow. Actually, it's the same thing in much greater quantity. They didn't didn't plant what they planted in their corn comes out a hundredfold same as in life you get exactly what you put out 
and more. I cannot sow irresponsibility and reap success. It doesn't work that way. I can't sow laziness and reap reap, reap, I got my tang all tangled up. Just a minute here. You can't sow laziness and reap reward. I can't sow stinginess and reap a blessing. That's not how it works. The Bible is full of examples of this, both positive and negative. The principle is very clearly demonstrated in Esther. You will reap what you sow. And I have some bad news. Here's the bad news. We've all sinned. And sin has a consequence. There is nobody that hasn't. We have all sinned. And sin has a consequence. In Romans 3.23 it says this. For, what's, what's that word? Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. You meet somebody that says, I'm not one of those, they just sinned again. They lied. We're all sinners. Romans 6.23 says this. The wages of sin, see there's always a bill that comes due. The wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard, and the price for that, the wages of sin, is death. We're all guilty. None of us has a, a worthy excuse or a valid justification for our disobedience to God. Now, we give excuses, and we have our justification, but they're not, it's not valid. Well, everybody was doing it. It's still sin, I really liked it. <laughs> so it's still sin, and there will be a consequence. That's how it works. The consequences of our sin are both natural in the here and now, and they are eternal. They echo through generations here on this planet. I could, I could tell stories here of people that I know in this room who have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who knew Jesus and loved Jesus and prayed for them two generations before they were born. And I can see the things that are happening in their life because of it. And I know way too many people who say, I don't have that. That ain't what my grandparents were doing. That's not what my parents were doing. And you know what I would say to you? Start now. You can't do anything about what happened in the past. But you can start today so that two or three generations from now, they're saying, remember Grandma, what he did? How he prayed for us? You can change it today. But there are consequences to sin. And many are suffering those, right? We're all suffering those right now. Sometimes they're eternal. That's bad news. We're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. But praise God, there's good news. I only read the first half of Romans 6.23. You see, the good news is that Jesus paid the ultimate investment to rescue you. You were dead in sin. You were a sinner, and the wages of sin is death, but Jesus paid it all for you. In Romans 6.23, we read, the wages of sin is death. 
but, and you know me, I have to say this, that's the biggest but in the Bible. (laughs) The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, That's huge. I have an old Bible in my office on my desk. You wouldn't be able to see it because my desk is messy. I'm sorry. It's in the process of being cleaned up. But that Bible is on my desk. I've had it um, for many, many years, uh, almost 40 years, and uh, over 40 years now. I used it in college a lot. Um, I had gotten this Bible, and it had all this cool color coding in it and stuff, and I did a lot of studying that Bible. The interesting thing about that Bible is that when, if it falls, it opens up to Isaiah 53. And you can see that the pages are all wrinkled in Isaiah 53. And that's because for six months, when I first came to Jesus, for six months, I wrestled with something that had to do with Jesus and who he was and who he said he was and what the truth was. And although I was in Bible college, supposedly studying all these great things, I had some basic things about Jesus I knew I didn't know. And I spent six months studying that. And the reason those pages are all wrinkly in Isaiah 53 is because of the tears that fell on those pages so many times. Because 800 years before he was born, it describes exactly what he did and exactly what Jesus went through for me. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, that's Jesus, the sins of us all. So the bad news is we've all sinned. The wages of sin is death, but God sent Jesus. Jesus was willing to pay the ultimate investment to rescue us. In John 1.12, it talks about the fact that a lot of people believe, but a lot of people did not receive Jesus. And it says in John 1.12, to all who believed him and accepted him, received him, what he said, they accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. A lot of people know the story. A lot of people know about the Bible. A lot of people know about God. They know about church. That does nothing for you. Knowing about God is good, but it does nothing for you. What you need to know is God, not about Him. You need to know Him. And the only way to know Him is through Jesus because that sin that we talked about separates us from God. And the only way to make that connection again is to have that sin removed. And I'm pretty sure that you're in the same boat as me. You don't have to raise your hand on this. Have any of you ever sinned and thought it was bad and you tried not to and you kind of did again? <laughs> you know what that's, that's called? Life. That's all of us. We can't just stop it. But what we can do is come to Jesus. And have him remove our sins from us, as we sang today, as far as the east is from the west. And we can have that relationship with him, not because we're good, but because he's good. And because of what he did for us, laying our sins on him. We can be forgiven. We can be redeemed. We can be free in Jesus. And I want to say, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Because there's even more good news. And that's 
as redeemed people, if you're one of the ones who's claimed Jesus as Lord and Savior, as redeemed people, we get to invest the rest of our lives for rewards, both now and forever. That's huge. Because life is preparation for eternity. And some of you are preparing the wrong way. As redeemed people, we get to follow Him, allow Him to empower us and prepare for eternity and store up those rewards. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul's writing to Timothy and he's about to die. And he's kind of telling him his last stuff. And he says, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and remained faithful. I stayed true to Jesus. I believe he's the one who got me here. It's, here's how I'd, I like to describe this. Uh, dance with the one who brung you. Jesus is the one who got him there. And he stayed with him the whole time. I have remained faithful, and now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And it's easy to stop there and say, yeah, that's Paul. Like super Christian, of course, he's going to get it. Paul goes on to say, and the prize is not just for me, but for all, all believers. Remember, he's talking to believers here. But for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. I know too many believers are not looking forward to Jesus appearing because the lifestyles they're living, the choices they're making, it's like, I hope Jesus doesn't come back right now. (laughs) We need to be loving his appearing because we're sowing and planting the right things. Growing up in my house, there was a plaque on my wall. We moved around a few times, and it was, it was on every wall. I mean, not every wall. It was in every house that I was in. I just remember seeing this. It was this, it was, I'm, I'm sure it was like plastic made to look like wood. It was the definition of cheesy, okay? But I will never forget what it said on it. I found out later, I think it was a guy named C.T. Studd had said this. He wrote this on the plaque. It said this, only one life twill soon be passed. And I remember as a kid thinking, I don't know what twill means. What's twill? And I look it up, there's no twill in the dictionary. <laughs> Took me years to figure that one out. <laughs> Only one life twill soon be passed. In the first service, I had people come up to me and said, you never explain what that means. There's a, a, a hyphen, it's a it twill, it's a contraction, never mind. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It didn't make much of an impact on me then. But as I moved through life, as I met Jesus, as he got a hold of my heart, as I started to see what life was about, as I started to learn about the whole sowing and reaping thing, as I learned about preparing for eternity, um, it became more and more of a big deal to me because there's only one life and it's passing very quickly. And only what's done for Jesus lasts because you have a life to give, just one. You have one life to give. You have a limited quantity of time and energy to invest in something bigger than yourself. Something timeless, something life-changing and history-altering. See, my sin issue is settled. Jesus paid it all. It wasn't me, it was Him. I've accepted Him as my personal Lord and Savior But there are and there will be consequences when I sin. Consequences that can echo for generations and into eternity. 
And you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I will give an account to God. Here's a couple sobering verses. Romans 14, 12. Paul writes, yes, each of us, he's talking to Christians, each of us will give a personal account to God. I know a lot of people would like to give an account to God, just not a personal one. They'd like to give an account to God of so-and-so who they know who did these bad things. But that's not what we talk about when we stand before Him. It's a personal account to Him. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, he's writing to Christians. He says, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Everything. See, there's only one life. One life. That's emphasized in Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. It says, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. I've done a lot of funerals in my life, and one of the things that I will often say at a funeral is, um, you know, I found out I'm terminal. And people are like, oh, even in first service, somebody like, oh, no, I said, that's the bad news is you're all terminal. Nobody gets out alive. We all die. We just don't like to think about that. And this reminds us, each person is destined to die once. And after that comes judgment. So also, Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins. He already dealt with that but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. There's that eagerly waiting for Jesus coming back again. So, my struggle. What was my struggle? First, a couple things. I don't want anybody walking out of here thinking that what I just talked about was karma. It's not karma. Karma would say that you're suffering because of something you did in a past life. We're destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is not karma. It's not because of something you did in a past life. It's not fate. It's not fatalism. There's a law of sowing and reaping, and that's what happens. But there is no doubt, there is no doubt, although I don't believe it's karma, there is no doubt you reap what you sow. You harvest what you plant. There are consequences. I struggled putting this all together this week. Because it's certainly true, you reap what you sow. What you do comes back to you. That's true. But do you know what else is true? Grace. Grace is true. How can I put those two things together? So that you don't end up championing one and minimizing the other. I grew up in a, in a setting in a church many years ago. Um, they struggled with that. They couldn't handle the grace thing. They couldn't handle that, that people sinned and God had grace. And so they fell on the other side of everything and became very legalistic and very pointing their fingers at everybody else, even though you know when you point your finger, you have all of these pointing right back at you. They didn't see that. But I also know people who swing on the other side of that and all they talk about is grace. You can do whatever you want because God's grace takes care of all of it. Mm, there is a law of sowing and reaping. 
So how do I put those two things together so that I don't raise one and lower the other or raise that one and lower this one? That, to me, is where the tension lies. And the hard part is you have to live with that tension. Yes, when I sin, there are consequences. And there is grace when I sin that does not take away the consequences. When I, if I rob a bank and I get caught and I realize that was sin and I repent and I ask forgiveness, am I forgiven? Am I still going to jail? Yes. Because there are consequences. But I have to put those two things together somehow. I accept God's free gift of forgiveness and salvation. And along with that faith, according to James and many other places in Scripture, along with that faith will always come good works. Because of the grace, because I am saved by grace through faith. See, good works don't save you. Should you do good works? Yes. Do they save you? No. We're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That not of yourselves, that a gift of God, not of anything you do so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace. Good works don't save you. But if you are saved by grace through faith, there will be a demonstration of that in your life. You will, your desires will begin to change. You have two natures at that point. You have this new incredible nature, but you still have that old nature. And I heard somebody say they were talking to their mentor and they, they said it's like, the mentor said it's like two wolves, you know, fighting inside you. And, and the boy says, which one wins? And he said, the one you feed. <laughs> so once we're saved by grace through faith, we can now choose to do the right thing. And the one you feed is the one that's going to be stronger. That's how it works. Good works. Because the Bible says faith without works is dead. Works don't save you, but if you're saved, there will be works. Does that make sense? Let me close. This is not up on the screen. Galatians 6, um, 7 through 9. I, I love this section in the message paraphrase. kind of summarizes all this. What a person plants, he will harvest. Verse 7. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God harvests a crop of weeds. And all he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's Spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. See, he understood that doing good is not always easy. It, it's hard. But too many people give up right before the harvest comes. It's like you planted, you did all the hard work, and then you didn't harvest because you gave up too soon. So he says, don't give up. Keep doing that. And you say, but I don't see anything. After you plant something, you don't see anything. It's a while before you see anything coming up. So just, he says, keep doing good. Because the bottom line is we don't want to end up with weeds. 
We want real life, eternal life. I'd like you to bow your heads as we close in prayer. Father, I know that there is some tension in this because we know that grace, amazing, amazing grace, can pick us up when we fall. We can go right back into your arms again because of your grace. That we're saved by grace through faith. We didn't deserve it. We could never earn it. And that you are always there to catch us when we fall. But we also know, Father, that just as much in your word, it teaches that whatever you sow, you reap. Whatever you plant, you harvest. And I pray, Father, that as we live with that tension, that it's not about earning our way to you. It's not about earning your pleasure because we know that nothing we do could make you love us any more or less than you already do. Your love for us is amazing. I pray, Father, that as we live with that tension, all those who are hearing this who have turned their life over to Jesus, they've become followers of Jesus, that um, the, the planting of the right thing would be in earnest. And, Father, for anybody hearing this who's they, they've never got on board with that, they know about church, they know about religion, heard about Jesus, and, and maybe they even believe some of that, but they've never received him. They've never accepted him perfectly into their lives. That in simple faith, right now, in the quietness of their own heart, they would say, Jesus, I don't understand at all, but I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, and I want that. And I accept what he did on the cross as payment for my sins, and I come before you not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus did. And I just lay it all at your feet. We know, Father, that you can do amazing things through the life of someone who is yielded to you. We thank you, Father, and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song. And maybe that's what you've been missing. The time that you're going through has not been joyful for you. And the truth is, right in the middle of whatever you're going through, there can be joy. Because it's the joy of the Lord. That's my strength. So I don't know what you've been going through. I don't know what time it is for you. We're finishing for such a time as this. The truth is, what you're going through, the time that you're in right now, maybe you were made for this moment. Maybe this is your turning point. Like, like Esther and, and Mordecai. Not like Haman. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Our clock... That, that has been reminding us about that, that this could be the moment that you're made for. It's going away after today. Thank you, Jay, for letting us borrow that. After today, it's going away. But for today, let it remind you that even though this clock isn't ticking, the clock is ticking. Your clock is ticking. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So first, make sure you've accepted Jesus as Savior. And then let's plant in response to God, letting God's Spirit do the work in us and through us so we can harvest the crop of real life, eternal life, not weeds. Because what you do comes back to you. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for loving us even when we were far from you. 
enough to send Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. That even though we were all sinners, we were all separated from you because of sin, that by receiving Jesus, we can come into that relationship with you. We can be redeemed. We can be forgiven. We can have our, our, the, the, our past forgiven. We can have a new meaning and purpose for living today and that living hope for the future. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing in us and through us here. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.